The scripture reading this morning is found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. It's found on page 984 of the Blue Pew Bible, Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, come to us, we pray, by your Spirit, and open up your word to our understanding that we may live out this gracious word, that we may live out the gospel of our Lord Jesus That we may live out, Lord, the death and resurrection of Christ. And that it more and more, Lord, your accomplishments will make itself known in our lives. In real uh, putting sin away. In real uh, true walking in new grace. Bless us to that end we pray. Amen. Some of you perhaps have seen the two Kill Bill movies uh, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, If you're not familiar, in them the main character played by Uma Thurman has been a member of the deadly Viper Assassination Squad. Nice little group of people. When she becomes pregnant, she abandons this squad to care for her child. She goes to Texas, meets a young man, plan to get married, but on the wedding day, the former boss and lover, Bill, head of the assassination squad, comes with certain members of the squad and kills everybody at the wedding. And they tried to kill her, uh, but didn't quite do it. She is in a coma for four years and wakes up to find out the loss of everything. And then Uma Thurman, then at, uh, during the movie known as The Bride, sets on a quest to kill all those people, especially, finally, to kill Bill. Okay, that's the name of the movie. What a great start to a sermon. Yes. <clears throat> I understand. I understand. Why did I come this morning to hear this kind of thing? <clears throat> now, while I understand that artistically it's considered to be an excellent film, I'm not recommending the movie, okay? Uh, 
I haven't even seen it myself. I've seen either one of them. But I do think that an excellent summary of this passage could simply be kill sin. Great summary of the passage. Take that away. Kill sin. And if I might stretch the analogy a bit, the the bride in that movie is killing those who tried to kill her and killing those who would kill her again if they could. And that should sound familiar to we who are the bride fighting against sin. As his bride, we've been delivered out of the domain of darkness, Paul says in the first chapter of this letter. And this, this domain where sin was dominant, and though we've been transferred into the kingdom of his dear son, as Paul says there, we continue to deal with sin that is no less deadly to ourselves. If sin could have its way, it would obliterate your whole existence. It seeks nothing less than your annihilation. Though we may think differently. Sin is an assassin. Sin is out to ruin us. Sin is out to undermine your happiness and your relationships and your whole life. And perhaps this stretches the analogy some, but it is interesting in how they sought to destroy her happiness even on the wedding day. And sin literally wants to ruin the possibility of your ever enjoying everlasting happiness with God. That's what sin's end would be. It will tear you away, if it has its way, from ever experiencing that great marriage supper of the Lamb, the great picture of the eternal fellowship and feast with Christ. And so, kill sin is not an option as we see in this passage. Kill sin or it will kill you. So Paul says, as he underscores this saying, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The most serious words that could be spoken to a human being. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So let's look at what Paul says. It's Best to split this passage into two parts based on the two big commands here. The first one in verse 5, if you keep your Bibles uh, open, it will be helpful here. But the first one, verse 5, put to death what is earthly. And then the second section, uh, verse 8, put them all away. So uh, one says put to death, the other put away, but they both basically mean kill sin. Now, when he says, put to death what is earthly in you, it literally reads, your earthly members. And this means, basically, put to death the sin that belonged to your old humanity, to your old life, your former life, under the power of sin. Put to death all of those things that belong to your former life. And we'll see as we go that he speaks in terms of an old humanity and now you belong to a new humanity. It's bigger than just old self, new self. An old world, new world. An old age, new age. 
Here again, as we've talked about, is that spiritual geography of moving from one city to another, from one domain to another, from one, you might even say, household to another. And don't live in accordance with your old household, your old life, your old connections, your old slavery. And he immediately begins to set forth what those things are. Sexual immorality has to do with engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage. The word pornea, from which we get pornography. And the second word is where we get the word catharsis. You know that word of of inner cleansing? Well, this is ah catharsis. Not clean. Unclean. And he also speaks of evil desire in the fourth term. And Paul is not saying that... As some have said, sex is dirty. Emphatically, he is not saying that. He says in Ephesians, actually, that the oneness that a man and wife have through their sexual union is a picture of Christ's union and oneness with his church. And so, uh, sex within marriage is one of the most beautiful and holy events in all of creation. Outside of marriage, though... Paul says it is unclean and it has to do with evil desire. Evil desire, wanting to possess something outside of marriage, Paul says, or possess someone sexually outside of marriage, is evil, he says. These are are strong words. We don't tend to think of evil. We think of evil as uh, physically harming someone. Think of evil as enslavement and things like this. But sexual union is meant to express to another person your complete and utter commitment to belong to that person for the whole of your life. That is what it's for. That is what it expresses. Thus, the intensity of it, the exhilaration of it, the joy of it, because it's to encompass and be large enough to state, I give you my life for all of life. That's its beauty. That's its transcendence in a sense. It is a promise to love and cherish that person that you will passionately seek out that person and his or her good until the day you die. That is what sex is for. It is to say that to another person. And outside of marriage, this simply is a lie. It's simply nowhere close to, I will love you forever. In fact, it many times <laughs> means the opposite, right? I will use you however I want to, regardless of what it may do to you or to me. And so when it becomes a tool to get what you want without even thinking about committing yourself to that person, Paul says, that is impure That is evil. So you see, it's in the name of love, sex outside of marriage opposes love. That's the issue. 
It stands against and fights against love because love is lifetime commitment to do good, to sacrifice one with another. Kay and I have talked about <clears throat> our, the joy of having our grandchildren. And all of this is by God's grace because God redeemed us from immoral backgrounds. Okay? Enough said, but uh, we, who knows where we would be apart from the grace of God. And we've said many times, thinking about, we now have a, a 30-year-old, a 28, a 26-year-old, we have five grandchildren. And we've talked about the 35-year investment to enjoy your children, your children's children with your children, you know. And we've said it like this in passing. That's a little different than the back seat of a car, isn't it? And that's what we're talking about. Back seat of a car, 35 years, by God's grace, again I say, that is issued in the joy of enjoying your grandchildren with your children. And God says that is love. And that is beauty. This is impurity. This is evil. And so, uh, this sexual expression is the center of this covenant. It's a picture as well of God's covenant to do us good, even at the cost of suffering for us. You see, for marriage, then to reflect God's covenant, it means that two people will spend themselves and suffer for each other to do each other's good so that in some way it bears the image of God's covenant. And you can see how if the supreme uh, sacrament, so to speak, or supreme sign of that commitment to suffer for each other's good is just taken and used willy-nilly, then God says, no, no, no. In God's covenant, he endangers himself horribly by committing himself to our good, but he would not turn from that commitment, spilling his blood to fulfill that commitment. And of course, he would take seriously any human expression that is a picture of that love and commitment. So, to these various descriptions of sexual sin, Paul adds covetousness. Some commentators would say that this covetousness relates only to sexual sin. That is, it's a way to say uh, the, the, the desire for that which is not yours. Well, what I would do is draw two circles and say this one's sexual sin and this is covetousness and certainly it intersects sexual sin. And you have to say that all sexual sin is a covetousness. It is a desiring that which we should not take for ourselves. <clears throat> but it is beyond that as well. It embraces our desire for anything that is, uh, would oppose God. Um, so that it, uh, while it overlaps, it embraces any wrong desire for anything that is not ours or a longing for things more than God or instead of God or rather than God. That would be covetousness. 
it plays an interesting place in the Ten Commandments as he talks about the second table of you shall not murder or commit adultery or steal or lie and then you shall not covet it as this umbrella of the root desire of all of this, seeking something which is not mine, seeking to have that which is not mine, to protect that, uh, protect even uh, by lies myself so that I can have more. And so this, this is why Paul can say covetousness, and he says, which is idolatry. Covetousness turns something into another God, a God that we want instead of the true God. The writer of Hebrews says, keep your life from the love of money in chapter 13 and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. At first, it seems like he's talking about two different things there in Hebrews. Because he says, don't love money. And then he turns and says, trust God to protect you. But then you realize that he's dealing with the same thing. Trusting in riches or trusting in God. Putting your hope in riches or putting your hope in God. It's not God that will forsake you. It's riches that will forsake you. He says, don't seek to make your good riches. No, put yourself in the protection of God. Put your hope in the one who will never forsake you. Don't make money your idol. And this doesn't mean, of course, that you can't hope for a better salary or work for a better salary or go back for more training for a better salary. These things can even be commendable, of course. But he's talking about a desire that displaces your desire for God. Desire to fill yourself with an alternative to God. And in this sense, it could be anything. TV, video games, novel, sports, hobbies, exercise, sex, power, money could be anything, that this becomes the centerpiece of my life. And the, the main thing mentioned in terms of covetousness is possessions uh, because it's so easy for us to want the security of those possessions. And the more possessions we have, the more secure we feel and we begin to hope in these things and depend upon them. And these really make bad gods, really bad gods. And you and I have to realize that these gods that we would take are assassins, okay? Don't take an assassin and make it your God. Don't give access to your life to an assassin. Can you imagine having a wild animal and you know that this animal is completely untamed And it will kill you at the least opportunity you give it. Now, you're going to take him out and pet him? You're going to have him sit on the couch with you while you watch TV? You're going to go take a walk? Is he going to sleep in your bed with you? You know what you would do with that kind of animal. You wouldn't even have it, right? (laughs) I would get rid of this animal. I'll get rid. That's the point. That's the point Paul is making here. Sin is dangerous. It is out to kill you. And if you give yourself to it, if you focus on it and turn away from God to embrace it, you will end up in eternal judgment. That's how serious this is. 
Paul says, kill these things. Schweitzer writes this, when man has lost God, he is at the mercy of things because his own covetousness takes the place of God. That was so striking to me when I read it. When you've lost God, you're at the mercy of things. Brothers and sisters, I say this to myself. Don't put yourself at the mercy of things. They make terrible gods. They're deadly gods. For someone on metamphetamine, met, we say, the effects are obvious. You've probably seen on the internet the pictures before and after. And just shocking to see the disfigurement of the face and the loss of teeth. And, and you look at that and you think, how could, how could you give yourself to this and watch this happen to your own body and yet you just can't stop it? And yet, it's not so easy to see the effects of the practice of sin, Right? But they're nonetheless deadly to us spiritually. Nonetheless are their consequences. In fact, they're eternal. And that's why he gives these reasons to put these uh, sins to death. First, that the wrath of God is coming on those who do these things. There's no escaping the scriptural teaching, however much we want to do away with it, that God's wrath is coming upon this world. And there's no escaping wrath, the Bible says, except through the person of Jesus Christ who has borne that wrath on the cross. There is no hope for escaping the wrath that is coming upon the earth except that we trust in the one who is the ark, right? The ark in the midst of judgment. There is the only safe place. God's wrath is his fixed opposition to evil. It's a necessary part of his loving good. He loves good so intensely. He intensely loves and he's infinitely opposed to anything that is not love. It opposes his very nature as the infinite lover. And and what's surprising about this and unsettling to us as believers is that this is addressed to the saints and faithful brothers in Colossae. He's not here proclaiming this among the people on the street. He might at some point do that. But he is saying this to us. Paul is warning you and me. Lest we think that my, we get this uh, disfigured idea of, oh, I can trust Jesus to save me from my sin and then I just live however I want to and give no regard for obedience to Jesus. He would say, that's not Christianity at all. You, now, your obedience never earns your favor with God. You only have favor with God because you come in your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And your favor with God only depends upon Christ every day of your life, never upon your own righteousness. You're never good enough to earn God's righteousness. And it doesn't mean that we have to be perfect as well. This uh, is addressed to struggling saints. It's addressed 
to those who uh, fall into sin. It's addressed to those, he says, who once walked in these sins, verse 7. So it certainly doesn't mean we've never done any of these things. And it certainly doesn't mean that we don't struggle with them or fall into these at a time. But it warns us against turning our back on Christ and choosing to give ourselves to personal desire with no repentance and no return to Him. No cry for help, no cry for forgiveness. Completely give ourselves over to sin and oppose and leave uh, Jesus Christ. It's interesting when Jesus says in John 15, abide in my love. And he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. It's as though there's this circle of care and, and, and protection. The doctor's prescriptions, you see, for your healing that he gives you. This is the way of life. This is the way of bringing healing to you and to your relationships. This is the way that more and more you can become a person who brings rich and good things into other people's lives. Live out this gracious word that I've given you. And so to abide in his love and care, we listen and submit to him. We honor his goodness. We, we say to him, I trust in your goodness because you died on the cross for me and I put myself in your hands. You see, it's part of trusting in the love of God that's shown in the cross. If you really do trust that love, then you will entrust yourself to this gracious God. Not perfectly, but as a basic way of life. And so we will not, as a way of life, give ourselves relentlessly to these things without repentance and say, forget it, God, I don't care. And that may go on, as in David's life and others, before God brings us back to repentance, but he brings us back to himself. And if we leave this circle and we refuse to return, we're despising God's care, we're spurning his love that he showed in the sacrifice of his son, we're mocking the very blood of Christ, you see, to turn away and leave Christ for sin. These things dehumanize us. I love this phrase. This I turned it into a command. It was by a commentator, Wright. Don't forfeit your likeness to God. I thought that was a a good turn of phrase. Don't forfeit your likeness to God. That's your beauty. That's your dignity. That's your nobility. That's your humanity. That you more and more take on the very character of God. The more and more like Him in your love for one another, the more and more you will live, the more and more you'll bring life to those around you. Don't forfeit your likeness to God. And that's what he's talking about in this second section that I'll just touch on. To put them all away, anger, wrath, and malice, and slander, and obscene talk, and lying. Uh, In these, it has to do with this anger and malice that we feel toward one another that breaks out in the very way we talk to and about one another. And the coarse and obscene language that we do uh, in this anger and malice. To have this uh, sense of wanting to do harm to one another. And we know how words completely change situations and completely change relationships. 
words are like Kay's grandmother would say. It's like they're like toothpaste. You get them out of the tube and you can't get them back in, <laughs> right? Words have to be guarded. And what we, how we treat one another is so critical in terms of our relationship to God. It's interesting that the word here that he uses in uh, verse 8 of, of malice, of, of slander. Slander is the word blasphemia, okay, for blaspheme. It's the same word they use to blaspheme God. And the idea is that to blaspheme a, a human being is to blaspheme God. As James says in James 3, how can you bless God and then turn around and curse man who's made in his image? No. If you're cursing man made in his image, you're cursing God. To blaspheme one another is to blaspheme God. And so here he says, you put all of these things away from you. Not lying because you are called to be in fellowship with the God who speaks truth to us. He never speaks falsehood to us. He is a faithful God. That's one of the things he says about himself over and over in the Old Testament. That he is faithful and he holds to his promises and he never turns back on his promises. So you can see how much he opposes when we are not upholding the truth with one another. But he says the reason that you don't do these things is because you've put off the old humanity, as we've already mentioned, with its practices. You've put on the new humanity. It's being renewed with a view so that more and more we will know God. That's what he means by knowledge here. So in God's renewal, you come to know Him more deeply. You come to fear Him and honor Him and adore Him and embrace Him. You, you come to uh, love Him and, and know His love in your own heart. You come to have an awe of Him as you see His beauty and glory shown in Jesus Christ. So it's wonderful that part of this renewal is going to be you drawing nearer and nearer to God and also to become more and more like God in the image of your Creator. Isn't that wonderful? This is what God's about, to open up the glory and beauty of God in Christ to you and to conform you to that beauty and glory. And he says, this is what you've been called to. You're not called to these destructive paths that hurt one another and harm relationships and are are faithless and dark. You've been brought out of that. You've been transferred. You're in a new kingdom. You're in a new relationship. You're under new powers. You don't have to be this slave anymore. It's amazing when, and and I, I can't imagine what it was like for people in the Holocaust to finally that day when the the Allied forces came and set them free from these torture chambers, these places of death. And they came out emaciated and, and broken. And eventually they took off those prison clothes. Eventually they took off the prison clothes. And they had baths. And they put on new clothes. And they realized, I'm never again going to be in that prison place. I'm never again under the oppression of those hideous people. You see, this is the idea here. 
You're not under the oppression of those forces. Uh, what he calls in, in other places here the elemental spirits of the world. You're no longer under demonic influence and control. Because it says in 1 John 5, the whole world is in the hand of the evil one. So you see, brothers and sisters, we're either in the old world, the old humanity, under the hand and in the hand of the evil one, doing his will, Paul says in another place, or God has transferred us out. So by his grace, we can have our humanity progressively restored into his image and become more and more like him and to know him more and more so that we manifest faithfulness and goodness and love to one another, whether in terms of our sexuality, in terms of our possessions, or in terms of the way we speak to one another. This is the move from an old solidarity to a new solidarity. And it's interesting in verse 11, he deals with these groups in the Roman society that were opposed to each other and split people in terms of different class and different uh, positions. And he does it right here because it's on the heels of don't hate one another and speak evil of one another because this was the breeding ground for it. People drawing away from each other and forming, quote, gangs against each other and pockets of resistance to each other and hatred of one another. And so he says of all of these, uh, the barbarian and Scythian are probably uh, just continuations of the idea of, of uh, Greek here. Um, Scythians were like the low life of the whole uh, of society and uh, north of the Black Sea, and they were regarded as just the most abominable people. And Paul says, yeah, but now they're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Now you do not separate yourself from anyone. Now Christ is all. He is everything to all of creation. He is everything to all peoples. He is equally the same to one people or another. He favors not one over another. And he is in all of his people And he binds them into one as Lord of all. Who are you that you would oppose these for whom Christ is all? When Christ has died for those of every tribe and tongue and nation and spilled his blood in love for all of humanity in that sense, how could we stand opposed? And yet... Apart from God renewing us and bringing us out of darkness into light, from God bringing us from old humanity to new humanity, that's what we'll be. That's what we'll do. But praise God, we, have, we don't have to do that any longer because we are being rescued by the powerful grace of God and conformed to the very image of this God who sacrificed His Son for us. The very image of this glorious God of love. Praise His name. Let us pray. O Lord God, we look to You as the only one who can enable us, Lord, to put to death these things, to put away these things. You alone, Lord, 
can give us mercy. You alone take us as projects and we become your workmanship, Paul says in another place. And your mighty hands are upon us. Your mighty spirit indwells us. And Lord Jesus, your death and resurrection work within us. As Paul says here, that in this whole context that you have died and you've been raised. Lord, we praise your name that we are those who have died to an old life and we've been raised to a new life. And you will continue what you've begun in us until the day of Christ Jesus. O Lord, ever conform us to your will that we may prove to be your people who are redeemed in Christ. Amen.